You know, there is, uh, there is much truth that we can uh, gain, that we can glean from the gospel accounts. And I recommend that, I don't know what you do with your Bible reading, but you, that you spend time reading through the gospels, making that part uh, of your reading. Um, because there is so much about, about us, or so much of us in the gospels. Yet I believe that many times in the stories they reveal uh, that we are held captivated by the end of the stories, you know, the resolution. We know all the endings, and so the journey to them can easily become almost trivial and overshadowed by the divine reality that we find in the stories. You know, we know the storm will stop with peace be still. We know that Peter will walk on water and then not walk on water and then be saved. Um, we know that Jesus will ride on the ground and stop the stoning of a condemned and guilty woman. You know, we know these things, so much so that perhaps we fail to enter into the interactions between God and his creatures. You see, we are all in the middle of the story in our lives right now. And I think if each of us, we, we have things that we're going through. We have things that are coming up. We have fears and doubts and worries um, we're all in the middle of these things uh, now. And so I think it's only right to spend more time in the middle of the story of those that came before us. And so it is here in the uncertainty of the future that we, along with them, find ourselves. And so that's kind of the intro for what I would like to spend time talking this morning. Um, I would like us to spend some time in the middle of a familiar story and try to wrestle along with the character. So if you would, let's turn to John 11. John 11, and I'm going to just go through this very familiar story, uh, 1 through 37. So we're going to be doing some reading. John 11, 1 through 37. <clears throat> now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. This he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. But I go, so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Therefore Th Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. 
Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. When she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled, and said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? Okay, so we're going we're gonna to cut it off right there. Um, we're not going to really go any further in our lesson uh, today, in the message today. Because I really want us to enter in to what's going on. Let's not just jump ahead. You know, I assume this text is not unfamiliar to most of us. Lazarus is ill. Mary and Martha send word to Jesus to, quote, come for the one you love is sick. All right, now this request might seem pretty straightforward. Uh, Jesus' friend whom he loves, who he cares for, he has a relationship with, is sick. And so far in the timeline of the Gospels, Jesus has healed many people. So this is, this is pretty straightforward. And so it makes sense to send for Jesus, for Martha and Mary. But it's not as uncomplicated as it might appear. And so I want to just spend just a little bit of time laying the groundwork for, for, this, uh, for this story. You see, we know from the preceding chapter of John, John chapter 10, that Jesus had been in Jerusalem at the temple where he had just made the statement, I and the Father are one. This is where he makes the statement. And, and this statement that led the Jews to attempting to stone him. Okay? We are told that he was able to elude their grasp or he slipped out of their hands and that he went away beyond or across the Jordan. All right, this is, this is chapter 10. And I'm sure that in some way for Jesus and his disciples, the river seemed like a safe barrier from the hostile political powers that were in Jerusalem. Indeed, John chapter 10 ends stating that many believed in him there. So he was at a place across the river where many people believed in him. It is there in the safety of the other side of the river where they are staying that word reaches them from the sisters of Lazarus. Lazarus is sick, and apparently it's, it's pretty serious, which ordinarily for most of the disciples, I think, would mean, okay, let's, let's go heal him, right? Um, the only issue is Lazarus is in Bethany. And why is that a problem? Well, Bethany is on the other side of the river, 
Bethany is a village in Judea. Bethany is two miles from Jerusalem. And for those of you that want a reference on this, that's the distance from Walmart to our hospital. So that's how close it is, two miles. I, I Googled it. <clears throat> in Jerusalem, the people want to stone Jesus. So this, this is, this is the, the issue here. And so now begins a back-and-forth dialogue between Jesus and his disciples that you may not quite understand if you don't have the backstory. But now we have the backstory. So you can imagine the relief that must have come across the disciples when Jesus says in response to the message he received, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified by it. This sickness is not to end in death. Okay, that's like a huge relief then. Uh, you know, sorry for your travail, Lazarus, but it's not going to kill you. So, unfortunately, you're, you're kind of on your own on this one. Um, I think we can assume that Jesus' statement about Lazarus was sent back through the messengers. This sickness, sickness is not to end in death. We'll wonder how that uh, hit when that arrived. Um, I think it's fair to assume that the disciples then kind of considered this issue settled. He's sick, not going to end in death. We're over here on the side of the river. This is great. Okay. Um, and in verse 6, we see that for the next two days, it's pretty much business as usual. Two days, right? And then almost out of the blue, on day three, Jesus says, let's go to Judea again. That's what he said. Let's go to Judea again. And the disciples' response is immediate and one of bewilderment and disbelief. They said, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? And so Jesus then replies, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. But I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. And the disciples quickly replied, um, they have roosters for that Jesus. Uh, you don't need to be the one to wake him up. Seriously. Uh, if he's sleeping, he will be okay. And you already said the sickness won't kill him. So let's, let's think this thing through. Is this really worth the risk of getting stoned? At least that's my version of how, how it went. Um, let's not miss the tension in this exchange. All right. And then Jesus drops the hammer and says, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. All right, so you want to talk about shocking news. I'm convinced that the disciples didn't see, didn't see that statement coming. Up until this point, the disciples have been more loyal than any of his other followers, but loyalty doesn't require optimism, as is evidenced by Thomas's reply on behalf of the other disciples. Let us also go so that we may die with him. And so they journey across the river of safety towards Jerusalem, towards danger, towards uncertainty as a group. Now I assume that Jesus and his disciples were not trying to draw attention to themselves on the way, but somehow word reaches Martha that Jesus is coming. And Martha immediately leaves the house and goes out to meet Jesus and finds him outside the village. He's not in the village, he's outside the village. Now, it makes some sense that she would meet Jesus outside the village because Scripture says that many of the Jews from Jerusalem had come to console them concerning their brother. Remember, some of these people are possibly the same ones that wanted to stone Jesus. I mean, it's two miles apart. Okay? Indeed, when Martha does return to the house, she calls her sister Mary secretly and tells her that Jesus is near and is asking for her. Mary then leaves and finds Jesus still in the same place on the outskirts of town. And so it is here at a place outside the village where two statements are made, both made in response to Jesus and the way he interacts 
with those he loves. And I would like to spend the remaining time we have this morning focusing on both of them and what we can learn about who we are and about Jesus from them. Two statements. Now, so far we have spent a good amount of time detailing things from the side of the disciples, from those outside of Bethany. But both of the two statements I want to look at this morning come from those at Bethany, starting with the sisters Mary and Martha, because I think there is applicable truth that we need to hear that is manifested in them and their responses. So this, this first statement, which is made by Martha and Mary, is, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, there, there is a lot wrapped up in this statement, and um, I don't know that we can completely unpack that statement. I'm going to try to hit it from a bunch of different angles this morning as I had time to really think about this statement this week. Um, but there's a lot going on with, with that somewhat simple statement. Both of them separately, and I'm sure collectively, are wrestling with questions, frustrations, and despair. And the fact that they are unified in their response, I think, goes to show that questions and more questions have been turned over and over between them. For four days, they have been grieving. They have turned this over and over, and it's boiled down to one statement. I mean, they could, they could, they've had time to think about their statement. And just a, just a side note, um, for those of you that care, about, care to learn about this, um, if you have two women who are upset, approach you about a subject that has been four days in the making, and they use the exact same phrase, exact same words, you know that some stuff's been going on behind the scenes. Just going to be honest with you. Um, there is a lot wrapped up in whatever phrase you receive. Okay? We can only speculate what some of those discussions were. You know, how dare he show up late? How can he say that he loves us? He better have a good reason for this. I can't wait till he gets here. I bet he won't even show up. Who knows? Um, now, like us, when we get around to talking to God about things we are frustrated with, we tend to dial it back just a little bit. And so the interesting thing is you can read their statement as simply an innocent matter of fact or as a bitter accusation. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's the first thing out of both of their mouths. And I think it was clear that they both at least somewhat put the blame of Lazarus onto Jesus. After all, if he could have come and prevented this, his death, and he didn't, then isn't he at least partly to blame? I guess one could give the benefit of the doubt and simply ascribe to this as a faith statement. You know, I believe that if you were here, my brother would not have died. But, you know, I'm not sure that that really changes the sentiment, does it? And so they speak out of pain, grief, and I'm assuming some bitterness. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Not your friend wouldn't have died. My brother, if you had been here, I wouldn't be hurt. I wouldn't be in pain. You couldn't, wouldn't come. I'm sure that they had had word of how far Jesus was away. I mean, the messenger went, and I assume the messenger came back. And so I'm sure they were expecting him a lot sooner. 
So why did you take so long? Maybe you couldn't have made it in time, but you didn't even try. Such a loaded, loaded statement. One that implies frustration, doubt, anger, grief, pain, and resignation from both of them. And so because we know how the story ends, it's easy to write off the conflict that's going on in this situation. But, but what about what we're going through? What about when we find ourselves in, in their story? What happens when we literally or metaphorically make the statement, God, if you had been here, then X wouldn't have happened. If you had been here, as if God is absent, what we are really saying is, God, if you loved me, you wouldn't have allowed this. We may not say if you had been here, but we say things like, if you really loved me or, or if you really cared. If you had been here. Now let me ask us, um, is this a true statement? What made Mary and Martha believe that if Jesus had been there, Lazarus wouldn't have died? It, what, what made them believe that he, if Jesus had been there, he simply would have just healed him? Um, and and, and I, I point this out because they have other expectations of what Jesus will do and won't do that are be, going to become very rattled here shortly. Um, Jesus, if you had been here, or Jesus, if you really are the Son of God, I don't think things are going to happen to you that end up happening. Um, and we see that even in the disciples. A misunderstanding. And so it's, it's, a, it's a loaded statement. Um, and if we hold to the same statement, the belief that if Jesus was here, then our problem, whatever problem X is, wouldn't have happened, and then problem X does happen, we find ourselves in the same predicament as Martha and Mary. So Jesus must not really be here. Right? I mean, sure, Jesus exists, but in some way, he's not here with me. If he had been here, then this wouldn't have happened. There are times in our lives where we may feel forsaken. If you had been here, right? I mean, obviously, we will say we believe that God is here, but if you had really been here, um, if you had been here, but you weren't. We base the presence of Jesus on the outcome that we desire. And that's the point that I was getting at with Martha and Mary. Just assuming that if Jesus had been here, all the problems would have been, would have been fixed. You know, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. We base the presence of Jesus on the outcome that we desire. Or the statement can easily be translated, if you follow along, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It can easily be translated, my brother died because you were not here. Which may have worked for Martha and Mary, but as followers of Jesus now, we can't even, we can't even give Jesus that out, right? Um, for we know that he is here with us. Now, always. So instead of, my brother died because you were not here, we are forced to contend with the fact that you were here, and my brother still died. And somehow that can almost be harder for us to deal with. But... Jesus being here, and this is what Martha and Mary thought, Jesus being here is not the antidote to stop pain and loss in this life. The reality is that Jesus is here and stuff still happens. That's, that's the reality. 
You see, as many of us may have already experienced, and all of us will eventually realize, we will all at some point find ourselves in the position of Mary and Martha, standing outside a tomb, burying our dreams, hopes, innocence, health, a loved one, seemingly by ourselves, waiting for Jesus, who, if he had been here, would have spared us. Or so we can think. There will be times in our lives where difficulty arises. How will you and I respond to God? You will have times when you are betrayed. You will have times when you are treated badly and unfairly. It doesn't have to be these major things. It can be smaller things. You will suffer loss. It's going to happen. You know, it's too easy to believe that following Jesus will protect me from the calamity of this world. If I'm a follower, if I'm one that you love, I will be protected. You know, this comes from a confused understanding of what Jesus came to do. And so this leads to a confused and oftentimes wrong understanding of what following Jesus actually means for our lives. But think with me about the people of faith that you look up to. Think about the people of faith that you, whoever they are, that you, present, past, that you say that person was a man or a woman of God. The ones that you believe faithfully followed Jesus to the very end. Think about the life that they led. You know, how did it turn out for the disciples? For the early church martyrs? For our Anabaptist ancestors? For the slaves who were believers in America or around the world even now? I mean, there are people that followed Jesus that life didn't turn out. Um, like like um, many people think that it will. I can become convinced that if I trust the shepherd, he will lead me to only the cool waters. But the psalm says that he leads me to the very place I thought he was protecting me from, to the valley of the shadow of death. But he is with me. He is with you. If you had been here. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. And another way we can look at this, look at this uh, question is, it's really the why question all over again. It's just, of disguise. You know, why? If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. So why weren't you here? You know, it doesn't take much to read that into it. Notice, notice Jesus' response to the why. Okay? Again, most of the time, we're just, we've just hopped across all this and we're at the, we're at the, you know, the tomb. But notice Jesus' response to the why. He doesn't get angry. He doesn't respond with, I'm God, how dare you question me or speak to me in this manner? He enters into their pain and tears. He shares their suffering. He isn't angry. He is compassionate. So let me ask you a question. Why would it be any different for us? See, they are questioning God to his face. And he enters in. And in the next chapter, Jesus prepares for the Passover. And Jesus will experience the same brokenness soon. He will fully take on humanity's brokenness. He will take on our brokenness for the cross transcends time. And so he takes on our brokenness as well as the brokenness of the world that he lived in. Jesus is here and he will be here to comfort us. So what does it mean in your life for Jesus to be your comforter? And that's, that's a question I think we need to ask ourselves. What does it mean when we say that Jesus is our comforter, what implications are we putting on that? You know, we are very good at imagining a God 
or imagining God as a fortress that we can run and hide in, that we can be protected in. But what does it mean to be comforted by God in the midst of the storm or whatever's going on? See, this is, this is, this is the interesting part. Um, it's easy to be comforted, at least for me, it's easy to be comforted by people who aren't in control. We know that there is nothing they could do or could have done, and they're there to like mourn with us, to weep with us. We take solace in the fact that they care. What does it mean to be comforted by Jesus who is not limited? Jesus lived his life in solidarity with humanity. He entered into this chaos to rescue us, to bring us to God. But that meant that he experienced life as we do. The heartache, the pain, the temptations, the brokenness. There was even a moment when he too felt forsaken by his Father. So not only is Jesus here with us in our trials, but he has also gone before us. And so lastly about statement one, Jesus being here does not guarantee the results that we desire, but it is the assurance that he will never leave us nor forsake us through it, whatever comes. And we see that um, in him entering in with Mary and Martha. All right, the second statement, I'm going to just reread uh, the last three verses, John 11, 33 through 35. It says, When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled, and said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. The crowd observing Jesus being moved in his spirit and weeping were split between two groups. Okay, look at, look at uh, I believe it's verse 37. They're split between two groups. See how he loved him. But others were saying, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? There's two different statements that are made. Is verse 36 and 37. Both of these sayings are in reference to the tears of Christ. You have people looking and interpreting it two different ways. One says that the tears symbolize the great love that he has. The other sees the tears as potential weakness that questions that very love. So let me ask you as well. In relation to the story, what is our reaction to the tears of God? Put yourself in the situation and think about it. You know, is, is it possible to see the mourning of Jesus over the death of his friend and the pain and agony of his sisters as almost a cruel thing? Now, bear with me on this. Um, if he had not delayed, intentionally delayed his journey, maybe he could have saved Lazarus. Or why are we acting like distance is an issue? He could have just spoken the words and healed him. And now he has the nerve to lament a situation that he could have prevented? I mean, put yourself in those situations when, when somebody does something, they could have done something and they didn't, and they have the nerve to like be upset and cry? I don't want that from you. I wanted you to stand up. I wanted you to do what you could have done. 
I think one could easily see his tears as frustrating. How dare you cry? You have no right. You could have stopped this, but you didn't. And now you're sad? I don't want your tears and sympathy. I want my brother. I want my brother back. You know, or they could be seen as a sign of weakness. You know, maybe he was crying because something was outside of his control and he couldn't do anything about it. And they said he raised, he healed the blind man, but he couldn't do this. Um, I mean, when we lament and cry, that's probably most likely the case for us, right? We, I mean, we can't do anything about it. It's outside of our control. But either way, we're left with the question of what good are tears when I'm broken? I want a God that wipes them, not adds to them. I want a God that removes me from the brokenness, not enters into it with me. Or we can find ourselves saying, you know, if, you know back to this old trope, if God really loved me, then he wouldn't have allowed, he wouldn't have allowed this. If we aren't careful, we can end up deciding from our experiences that we serve an uncaring or unfeeling God. And I don't mean one that's the opposite of like here. I don't mean like a mean God. I just mean a distant, a one that can't actually enter in or relate. Or at least in some sense, believing that God, you know, can't relate or, or enter into what I'm going through. Right? I mean, we have this, we can have this idea that God is the potter and I'm just this lump of clay. So there's a disconnect here, right? Except God truly and beyond anything we could ever imagine or comprehend became clay. Still, at times I know I can act as if I don't want a God that can relate and empathize with me in my suffering. Because ultimately, what good does that do for me? It's easier to remove emotion from him. I don't want a God that emphasizes, right? I want a God that fixes it and fixes it now. And so we believe that God can't or doesn't relate to us. Maybe that's easier. You know, how lofty are your ways, you know, so far above me? If only I could see everything through his eyes, then I wouldn't be troubled just like he's not apparently troubled. Um, but Jesus looked through the eyes of God and was troubled in his spirit at the pain of his creation, and he wept. Even though he knew how things would turn out, he wept. You see, the interesting thing for us as Christians and I was thinking about this, uh, who claim the divinity of Christ. You know, there's lots of, it's between Christianity and other religions, is, is Christ, is God, was he really God? Is, you know, Christians, we claim the divinity of Christ, right? That Christ was God in the flesh. So the interesting thing about that is we don't get to pick and choose which moments he was human and which moments he was God. So you're backed into that corner. That's the mystery of the Incarnation. The mystery of the Incarnation, something referred to by the early Christians as the hypostatic union. It's the term used to describe the union of Christ's humanity and divinity into one hypostasis, which means one individual personhood, which has led many church fathers to flip the script, so to speak, and refer to Christ's actions by the opposite of what we may assume. So they would say things like, is a unity so full that Christ in his humanity was able to walk on water, and Christ in his divinity was able to be broken and suffer. They, they, would, they would flip it. 
Our Lord and Master sympathizes with our broken humanity because He assumed such humanity by tabernacling with us, casting a tent of flesh around Himself. He didn't ascend the cross so that we can avoid it. Rather, He says, take up your cross and follow me. And, and this, I think this can be very difficult for many of us to hear because we want Christianity to be triumphant. We want to follow a Christ who is triumphant in the ways that make sense to us. We are no different than the people in the story that we read today. We are so ready to pledge our allegiance to a Messiah on a donkey with palm branches and singing, but so prone to forsake a Messiah that leads down a road of pain and suffering and death. And so Jesus didn't come to save you or me from pain, loss, heartache, physical sickness, and death, etc. If that's what we expect, then we will be devastated and disillusioned by our life and by our faith. He came to defeat the enemies that have power over us, to lead us into all truth, to grant us life that comes through death, a life surrendered in death through death that will lead to life. He came as a shepherd to lead us home. And so in his words to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. So how does it help us to have a God who can sympathize with what we're going through? Because you and I are not alone. Because he is going through it with us. Because he is leading us through it to himself. God is love, and love suffers. You cannot separate love and co-suffering. Now, I know some may ask, how can God really sympathize and relate with us in our suffering and really understand? After all, He is God. He dwells in unapproachable light. And there are few things worse or less comforting in a crisis than being told, I know what you're going through from someone who can't possibly know. So I would like to close this morning by reading two psalms, and I invite you to follow along with me, um, beginning uh, with Psalm 22, where we see the suffering of Christ woven in the fabric of the suffering of humanity. So listen as I read this psalm, and notice that Jesus is here with us in our suffering, even as he suffers. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. O oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I have no rest. Yet you are holy, O oh, you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried out, and were delivered. In you they trusted, and were not disappointed, but I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head, saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, because he delights in him. Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breasts. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. For there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. 
They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws, and you lay me in the dust of death. For the dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen you answer me. I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and stand in all of him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. From you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before him. Even he who cannot keep his soul alive. Posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born, that he has performed it. You see, it is only because of what Christ endured and overcame in this psalm, Psalm 22, that we can have confidence and assurance and hold fast to the words of David in Psalm 23. It is only because Christ entered into death and returned victorious that we can find solace, confidence, and peace that no matter what happens, Jesus is here with us. So Psalm 23. I want to read this in reflection of the psalm we just read. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now I know, you know some of you may be wondering why I omitted the ending of the story uh, today. You know, the best, the best part, right? The part where Jesus is there with Lazarus. The part where he undoes his death for himself and his sisters. And maybe questioning how what I have shared this morning really me- measures up with their happy reality. You know, it may even seem like if Jesus really had been there, then Lazarus wouldn't have died. Maybe it seems like their story and yours are destined towards opposite 
conclusions. Yet, I want to tell you this morning that the ending of Lazarus' story is the very same as the ending to yours. Whatever sickness you encounter will not truly lead to death. One day Jesus will call you forth from the grave. Death will be undone. Indeed, death is already defeated. Until that great and final day, let us strive with our whole hearts to follow Jesus, no matter where he leads, knowing that he is here with us, that he pulls the yoke with us, and that he loves us. And so we are called to rest and take comfort in and follow our great shepherd who says, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world.